that's the difference basically between a Paralympian and Olympian. You train the same amount, you get paid the same amount, you, you work hard if not harder because not only am I training like to be as fast as I can on the bike, but I'm also still like rehabbing the brain injury and that sort of thing. So, Welcome to the Social Fabric Podcast with me, Andrea Splendori, and this week I will bring you the live recording from the show I did in the Well Theatre in Greystones on the 27th of April 23. My guests were Paddy Slattery and Richelle Timothy, and the show was called Against All Odds. The aim of the show was to reframe the way we talk and look at disability. This is part two of two. For more information and more episodes, please visit socialfabric.ie. Please subscribe, share and review. It would be really appreciated. The title tune is Happy and Shining by Doranda Badass. Five minutes uh, drive that way, then then get away. Brush your hand. So yeah, do take your time to get your drink. There's no rush. Um, we're gonna start again. So we left it at this cliffhanger, right? Where um, you realize, okay, time to get off the couch or the bed and do something. And but you were talking about that earlier. You know, I, I really love that idea. The glass is full. Uh, I wish it was fuller. <laughs> but uh, uh, <laughs> it's hard to be positive if when did they give you the little no, but it's um, uh, I like that. I'm gonna I might get up and do a dance if you give me a drink. Oh, will you? <laughs> An old Irish jig. <laughs> but you you said uh, you say something and uh, I think it's on your website. You said uh, uh, and uh, I'm paraphrasing. You said something. The the body stopped, um, but the imagination started. How did you actually say? Yeah, that's the way it went. Like, I know, like, I have a way with words. I'm a, a bit of a storyteller. I have the gift of the gab. But uh, that's the way I felt that my body had switched off, but my imagination had switched on. I just felt, like, honestly, I'm not even exaggerating. It felt like I was seeing and feeling and hearing things so differently. Like, everything was sort of turned up a notch and uh, that was because you know I was relying more on those senses and um, like initially my ambition was to walk again so I'd lie on the bed at home and of course my boxing skills came in handy so I'm lying on the bed and uh, I would close my eyes and in the village where I live um, there's a little uh, walk we call it around the river and um, every day for about three months, I'd lie on my bed and close my eyes and just imagine going for a jog. But it's not just a case of, like, imagine going for a jog. I would literally imagine every aspect of it. So from, uh, you know, I'm lying in the bed, I, I'm, I need to put my legs on the edge of the bed, stand up. I can feel a bit dizzy. I go and I can touch the handle and it's metal, like it's a bit cold. And the temperature in the other room, it's a bit different. And I go outside and I can hear the birds and the cars and all that kind of stuff. And the ground's a little harder under the feet. And the more you do it, 
the more lucid those sort of imaginings happen. And the funny thing is that, like everyone here that's got a brain, we're all capable of uh, using our imagination. And it just so happens that we're not really encouraged in our daily life to do that. I mean, for example, and it's a very small exercise, but I bet you everyone in here has got the ability to not even close your eyes, but imagine for a moment, imagine standing standing barefoot on a beach, looking out at the ocean. Imagine the sound of the ocean. Imagine the wind. Imagine the sound of the seagulls. Imagine the sound of the children playing in the sand. Imagine the sand in your feet. Imagine walking toward the ocean. We all have the ability to be able to do that. And I took it, I guess, to another level. And uh, after about three months, I was getting these twitches in my legs. And I was thinking, I was told I was paralyzed, but I can't. And after about three weeks of imaginary jogging, I was getting all the sensations inside my legs and my body. And I, I kicked up a fuss to get another, uh, what you call, MRI scan. And uh, there was only one scanner in the country at that time. And the waiting list was about eight months. And I swear to God, I rose murder. And they eventually got me in about, it was actually, because I have the scan at home, it was, believe it or not, it's a famous date. It was the 11th of September, 1999, that I went in for the scan. And myself and my mother, and God love my mother, like a lot of people are probably thinking, you know, Paddy's probably lost his mind. You know, he's going to walk and all this kind of stuff. And maybe this MRI scan will put it all to bed. And he'll come to terms with it. And uh, we were in, myself and my ma, we're in this conference room. And uh, Dr. Murray and his uh, team of consultants were there at this. It was like a big conference table. And of course, Dr. Murray was uh, giving me everything in uh, medical terms. And I just said to him, I said, can you give me it in layman's terms? in a language that I can understand. Based on what you see in the scan, can I walk again? And like I, like at that time, I was keen for him to say it. But um, in hindsight, I realized he could never say, you can walk again, because then I, if I didn't walk again, I'd be in a position to probably suit him, realistically. But what he did say to me was, looking at the scans, he said, um, see, after a spinal cord injury, generally after a year, there wouldn't be any more healing in the spinal cord. And this was like 96, 97, 98, 99, about three years after the crash. So again, he said, look, it's, it's, it's not common, but uh, again, it's not uh, impossible. But um, he, he did say that, um, he's, look, based on the scans, he said, in front of my mother, he said, um, whatever it is you're doing, and these are his words, whatever it is you're doing, Based on these scans, it would take, say, about five years of intense physical therapy and, quote, whatever it is you're doing in order for you to restore motor function, bladder bowel function, and all that kind of stuff. So motor function means, like, movement in the legs and that. So he could never say you could walk again. And ironically, when we left our room that day, like, I, I kind of say it, and I kind of put it in context, but it, I genuinely felt like um, I went into the room that day in the passenger seat of my life. And when we left, I was suddenly back in the driving seat of my life. So 
whatever was going to be determined in my life, I was the one at the steering wheel. I was the captain of my own destiny rather than someone else telling me this is my future. So uh, ironically enough, um, I know it's kind of emotional even thinking about it, but um, like literally within two weeks of me leaving that hospital that day, uh, two people in my village suicided. And there were two young enough people, two people that were in my class. In fact, one of the girls, Karen Gurry, I mean, beautiful girl, and she was going through uh, postnatal depression. And she was sent home, she was looking for help, and she was sent home and she suicided. She was my first kiss, first love, and she, she was gone. And she, was, she had the whole of her health. And people were saying, like about Karen and Carl, they were like two young people with, like the world is their oyster. They had their whole lives ahead of themselves. And here I was in the wheelchair getting all this sympathy. And I was thinking, um, geez, the life I'm living, there's something messed up because I was inside, I was happy out. I was motivated to, to live. Yet I was getting all this obvious sympathy. And uh, I just thought, at that point I was like, it didn't happen overnight, but I had lost the ambition to walk again. And I said, uh, well, the most powerful tool is storytelling. It goes all the way back to caveman days. And, um, you know, we're in this beautiful age of, you know, if you tell a story or convey, like, an honest story, there's a chance that you might just impact someone's life, whether it's a song or a poem or a film or a, a painting, whatever. And uh, I suddenly went on in this direction, a direction that I never imagined that I would go down. But I knew in a very egotistical way, I knew that um, I'm in this position that uh, I could potentially do something with my life and possibly influence someone for the better. And I know that's very idealistic, like uh, putting all my troubles on other people, you know, externalizing all my inner traumas. But I realized um, that by writing, that was my own form of therapy that was my own way of looking back in at my own troubles. So that's why I went down the road of telling stories and making films. And mm. uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a convoluted way into it, but yeah. it wasn't a natural, it wasn't expected of me to go down that route, but here we are. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, we'll get to your movies uh, in a minute, but Richel, um cycling. So. I said to you before, I, I never met, by the way, Paddy or Richelle. We had a blind date the other day for about five minutes on Zoom with Galen in the middle. So it was only, I don't know, I don't know these people, so I'm asking the questions. And I said to Richelle, I have no idea what a Paralympian does other than cycling, but I don't know what the difference is between a Paralympian cyclist and an Olympia cyclist. So mm -hmm. you're a Paralympian, which, well done, fair play to you. This is, is amazing. Thank you. Um, how easy so tell me tell me about that journey you decide okay i'm gonna get on the bike of course you become a paralympian i suppose like i got on the bike i bought a, an electric bike and <laughs> i just go around the town <laughs> it's kind of different you decide i gotta go on the bike i'm gonna become a paralympian how did that work yeah so i'll tell you a story about that in a second i'll just tell you i suppose the difference between being the olympics and the paralympics Please for yeah. people who don't know i think um so olympic uh, being an olympian is someone like who competes obviously you all know as a fully able-bodied person. The Paralympics is for people with a, a physical disability. So you compete against people who have a similar disability to yourself. So for example, 
um, for bikes, for cycling. There's hand bikes for people in a wheelchair. And then for me, I'm on a solar bike, but you're classed from C1 to C5 with C5 being the least severe. So someone in C5 might be missing their fingers. Um, I'm a C3, so I'm in the middle. So I have 30% use of the right side of my body. So that's what puts me in to that category. So you're classified by your country and then you go abroad and you get classified there. So it is fair. Um, my category is fair anyway. Some other categories, maybe there's a bit of discussion about <laughs> it. But yeah, that's the difference basically between a Paralympian and Olympian. You train the same amount, you get paid the same amount, you, you work hard, if not harder, because not only am I training like to be as fast as I can on the bike, but I'm also still like rehabbing the brain injury and that sort of thing. So you're probably doing doing that little bit more. Um, but yeah, the way I look at it is if you're an Olympian or a Paralympian, it's just the one, really. You have to treat it as the same. And I think for kids and that sort of stuff, it's really important to emphasize that. That I'm, if I went to the, they're like, would you not go to the Olympics? Like if I went to the Olympics, I'm competing against fully able-bodied individuals, whereas the Paralympics, I'm competing against people who have similar disabilities or that. So I'll get to how I got into cycling. Um, I suppose it was when I got back into college, I needed to do something. I used to go to the gym every day. So um, I came home one weekend and I said, like, I had a bike, a racing bike at home. And I said, like, I'm going to try this. So I had tried walking. I remember I got to, there's a crossroads, I'd say 500 meters from our house. And I walked as far as, and I'd be so tired that I'd barely be able to walk back in that my body would allow me, but my right foot was just dragging the ground, dragging the ground. So tried running anytime I'd run. So I'd take two steps with my left, one with my right, and it wouldn't catch up. So that used to, that was just a no-go, like, unless I wanted to face plant the ground, which I didn't really, it would happen the odd time, but I didn't want to do that. So then I got on the bike and used to have, some of you might know if you cycle, the clip-in pedals. So I got rid of them, went normal flat pedals, and I cycled the 500 meters to the crossroads. So I actually got to the crossroads and I remember being like, not bad, like, I'll go back. So I went back and uh, put the bike aside. I was wrecked. That was one kilometer done. And I remember all the inside of my leg was all bruised because every time I pedaled, because of the weakness, my knee just folded in and hit the bear. So, but I moved, unlike what I was doing when I was walking. So the next day I went another 500 meters, another 500 meters. And I'd say in the space of about two months, I, there was a seven kilometer loop. And my mom used to do it with me. So we'd do the seven kilometer loop, come home and I'd be so tired, I'd sleep like the 12 hours or whatever. And I remember getting up and saying, do you know what, like, I actually cycled that distance, you know, maybe I could do this. Um, so I went into my GP and she just said to me, you know, you should look up para sport. And because I was a sports scientist and I had an interest in sport, there was a guy, Mark Rowan from Atlone, he had come in and given us a talk in college. So I knew what it was, but in my head, if you're a Paralympian, you're in a wheelchair, you're visually impaired or you're an amputee. So for people looking at me, and I think with kids especially, like, they kind of look to see what's missing. Or what, do you know? So for me, I explain, I always say, you know, Ellen Keane, everyone knows Ellen Keane, like she's missing her arm from here down. But for me, like I actually have no proper function on my whole arm or my leg from my knee down. So I just say that to kids and the first thing they do is just look at your, look at your leg. Like, so I'm like, really, I should just like put something there that they can see, but yeah. So yeah, I, she went to me look into it. So I did and I straight away sent an email to cycling. So I tried swimming, but it wasn't advised with a brain injury because you know, if anything happens, you're going down, like, so. Then the running, obviously, I wasn't, I wanted to be good. I didn't just want to do it, so I did a trial with running, but it was faster people than me, so I was like, no. And then went to my first cycling competition. It was a 20-kilometer time trial down in Cork, and uh, I did, they said do half of it and see how you get on, so I did half, came back, 
and they're all interviewing me, kind of asking me, like, you know, what happened? What were you doing before this? So when I said I was into sport before this, everyone, they all just come around, they're like, oh, yes. Like, we have a sports person or whatever, and met up with a girl, Fran. She was a pilot in the London Paralympics, and she said to me, I'm going to give you some training to do. So that was the end of 2018. So I came back then, 2019, um, and I went, did two competitions, and I had progressed so much that I was getting to do some competitions abroad, and then by the track championships in 2019, I was called onto the elite squad. So from this time, I was at home full-time. I wasn't working. Um, I was just basically get up, cycle, go back to bed sort of a thing. The head coach in Cycling Ireland rang me, and he was like, we want to trial you out in a camp in Mallorca. And I said, okay, like whatever. And he was like, write this down. This is what you need. So he gave me a big list of like all the equipment you need, and he's like, this was a Thursday evening. He's like, you're flying out from Dublin Airport at half six Monday morning. I need to bring all that stuff with you. So I was like, what? And I suppose my parents were so supportive. Like other people would be like, oh, don't have the money or like, do you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I had, at the time, I had a golf. And I said, right, I'm going to sell the golf, buy all the equipment I need and give it a try. And this was before I even asked my parents. And then I said it. And they were like, you know, you can make money for the rest of your life. You might never get this chance again. Um, so yeah, I sold the golf for way less than what it was worth just to get the money, got the bikes, got the kit, got all the equipment I needed and yeah, landed out in Mallorca. So I spent five weeks out there with the Irish team and I remember the furthest I had cycled was 70 kilometers and the first day he was like, right, we're going out and we're doing five hours and I was like, oh, but I just never gave in. Like I just went home, I slept, uh, literally, I was either on the bike eating or sleeping and it was just a constant circle and for the coach there, he had just seen like, he said to me like, you mightn't have been the best but he just seen how much I wanted and how much I was willing to train and that, like, every week because I was training and following the plan, I was getting better and better and better. So I went to the Track World Championships 2019, and I came last in most of the events. I remember the scratch race. <clears throat> it's in the velodrome, indoor velodrome. There's none of them in Ireland. Um, and I was pulled in. So if you get lapped three times, you're pulled in. Uh, so I was pulled in, and I remember thinking, like, geez, that was so good. Like, I want to do it next year. And the coach saying, like, what you want to do? And I was like, I want to be better. Like, so straight home, and mostly you take time off. But I just kept training, kept training, kept training. And then I suppose from that, went to as many competitions as I could, went to everything. Like if there was a race in Cork, went to Cork the weekend, race in Donegal, went to Donegal, just went everywhere to, to train as much as I could. And then I started racing against able-bodied Irish like female cyclists. And I used to go to Dublin every Tuesday evening. You start in a bunch, it's first one over the line. I'd get dropped, which means like off the back, off the back every single Tuesday. And by the time I had the 12 weeks of the summer done, I was able to stay with them for the whole lap. So I was like, okay. Whereas in other times, if that was in football and we were getting beaten all the time, I would just said, flip this, like I'm done. So yeah, I went to the Track World Championships the following year, 2020. And um, yeah, I won a bronze medal in the scratch race. So. I did say in my little intro the determination and the ambition and the motivation and the positive thinking. So all of that's coming out. It's, it's fantastic. It's amazing to Are you off to Flan the Flanders? Is that what it's called? On yeah, Saturday? I'm racing in Flanders on Sunday. So I fly out tomorrow night and it's just a race on the cobbles. So, so what's the we'll sorry, what is just the race in the cobbles? Because like the Flanders, <laughs> I don't know anything about cycle, but I know about the Flanders. Tell so it's a, it's a road race. So my main events are actually track cycling, which is indoors. But I do the road as well because... We're trying to build up qualification points for Paris next year. 
So if you win a medal, you automatically qualify. Um, but if you don't, you just build up as many points. So it's on the road. It's a 70-kilometer race with 1,700 meters of climbing. So for anyone that cycles or that, it's, it's hilly. And like for me, a track cyclist, like going off hill is not good. <laughs> but we'll give it a shot. Like the goal is, you know, if I can get enough top 10 finishes and by the end of this year get qualified for Paris, then you can just train so, so hard through the winter. Whereas if you don't get qualified this year, you know, you have to go to Japan, load, like, really fair countries, self-fund yourself to try and get qualified. So the goal is just, yeah, for me to just keep tipping away, get closer to the best girl. So I know people see results online, but I never compare myself to results. So I might get fifth one day, but there could be 100 people in the race. Like, I might get fifth out of five. So I never say, do you know, I got fifth. I'll always say, like, I'm one minute behind the best girl in the world, mm. or I'm two seconds behind the best girl in the world. So you're just trying to narrow that gap each time and the hope is the goal for me is to get to Paris and to be fighting with the top girls and yeah just I suppose look back so every time I go to competition I think I listen to like a playlist or whatever like the Saw Doctors or something <laughs> do you know because I'm so country but yeah and I you like take the, you take the lady out of Ross yeah Cameron. yeah yeah so try to try to think like I've heard this song when I used to be on a bus going to a match or whatever and look where you are now sort of a thing, just mm. always, at the start I used to say, I'm gonna go back and play football, even when I was cycling, whereas now I'm like, not many other people in the world, like only 26 athletes from Ireland got to go to the Tokyo Paralympics, so need to take it, you know, as it comes kind of, so yeah. Fair play, and best of luck to getting into Paris, we'll be cheering for you. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, so Paddy, apart from being a great storyteller, is, I watched his movie a couple of days ago because I said, I just need to talk to this guy. I better watch the movie. He told me it's shy. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I talked to our resident... <laughs> Love, hair on steroids. No, no. I, re I talked to our resident film critic here and I, I told him exactly what it's all about. And I did say, oh, Jesus, it's going to be another love hate thing. I, I really watch it. And my wife is here. We watched it together. And it was really good. Genuinely very good. Uh, I recommend you watch it. It's called Broken Law. And it's been picked by Netflix, uh, which is not an easy thing, right? Well, or is it? I have no idea. Have, what, what, what is it like to make a movie and you've been picked by Netflix? Is it easy? Uh, Paul, you'll notice it's, it's not fucking easy breaking <laughs> into the film industry. It's not like paralyzed or not, like, <laughs> it's not easy. So, like, our objective to make the first one, I guess our goal was to make something that would put bums on seats, you know, make money for the investors. So that's why we went down the tried and tested. Uh, crime thriller, you know, and it didn't exactly resonate with me, it's like I'm proud of the film, but it's not, it feels like, you know, we made it for different reasons, mm. it's not as personal to me, but um, but story-wise, like I have a little few Easter eggs in there for, uh, there is some meaning, of course it's a crime drama on the surface, but there is something underneath the shell, or underneath the bonnet. Um, but I guess in terms of goals, like my goal would be not necessarily to have a film, you know, win an Oscar or a premiere at Cannes or whatever. I mean, I'm very confident that that can happen if I put enough energy into it. But um, I just want to tell a story, which might sound a bit kind of Irish, you know. I just want to tell a story that I can look at and say, yeah, that's, yeah, I was born to do that. You can't take that away from me. And that's a very selfish way of looking at it, but um, 
You know, long after I'm gone, there'll always be that. And uh, it's probably not a healthy way of looking at it, but um, it's nice to know that, um, you know, long after we cast off these mortal coils, there's something of me there still exists, you know? Absolutely. And I know you're kind of not being dismissive of the movie. I know exactly what you're saying. It was a commercial decision to do something that was to be picked. And, and unfortunately, it was during the pandemic, so the movie was released, mm. wonderful. Pandemic came, so you didn't make as much money as you, you should have. Mm. Um, but the movie is great, and, and I, I want you just to explain a little bit, because Paddy writes and directs the movie, it's not just the director. We get to director bit in a minute. And produce it. And produce Stress, it. So stressful. It's unbelievable. Making them phone calls. Uh, can I have 50 grand? Uh, no. <laughs> just getting rejected, man. It's hard. So which is the part you like the most? I hate it all. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's like self-flagellation. It's, it's torture. Torture. It's like I was saying to John Connors. It's it's 98% hard work and 2% reward. You know, uh, so it's it's not very balanced. It's not like it's not healthy at all. But I did realize looking back, and this like, I guess it's good to be motivated and it's good to get up in the morning and do something you love. But I realized that for maybe 20 years of my life, I was doing making films and doing routines to prove to other people that I could still do things. Mm. So I wasn't necessarily doing it for the right reasons. The fuel in the tank was, you know, it was, I was basically overreaching, trying to prove that I could do it. And then when I done it, and like you said, when COVID hit, we, ironically, we uh, premiered at Dublin and we had a, like a whole strategy with uh, cinema release and, Netflix and selling it all over the world. And then COVID hit and that put the kibosh on a lot of things. Like we were, like you said, like we were invited to America, Russia, South America, at all, like all these festivals to show our film. And all of that got canceled. And I was thinking, um, you know, on one way it was like, you know, a global outbreak, you know, let's put it into context. <laughs> but funny enough, like when the COVID hit, and when the film done its thing, I found myself at home thinking, like looking back at the last 20 years, and I was thinking, uh, like I exercised a lot. And it was the first time in my adult life that I actually looked after myself. Like I was, like in 20, early 21, like I was feeling probably healthier than I'd ever felt in my life. Like I look back at pictures and videos of us making films, and I just see an unhealthy human being. Of course, like I was motivated and I was optimistic and I was positive and all that. But uh, like I said earlier, I had the wrong fuel in the tank. Mm. And now, like if I do one in the future, I'm going to do it for me. It might sound selfish, but at least if I'm getting up early in the morning and breaking my back, it's for me first and other people second, you know? Yeah. But what, uh, when I was watching the movie, and, and I think Galen said it when he, he, he was here he, earlier, he said, you know, the movie got some great reviews and there was no mention of you being in on a chair. Mm. And but knowing that we were gonna talk today, I was I was looking at the movie and thinking, okay, that's this great movie and I love the story. I genuinely love the story. Mm. Um this you call them little eggs in an Easter egg. There's a few twists, so I won't spoil it for you. It's well worth watching. But then I was thinking, how so you're talking about imagination, right? You can imagine yourself jogging. 
So your next movie is probably already in, a, in your head. You want you, there is one you're gonna tell us about, but where is there a limit of what you can do as a director? Let's say you want to shot shoot, shoot a movie on top of I don't care until that's in your head, but is that possible? Honestly, like my next film, I could I could honestly see it premiering at Cannes or Venice. Okay. And getting a palm door and traveling the world with it, I can see that no problem. Okay. And that's based on like reality that there's a lot of stuff that's probably below par, mm. and that's as polite as I can be about it. Mm. That that makes a lot of money and and travels a lot. Mm. So um, like it's not like it is hard, but in terms of industry. It's weird because in this industry, it's not necessarily how good your product is. It's how good the people are at selling that product. Mm, mm. And generally, there are a lot of shysters in the industry that are very good at selling products that are basically like junk food for the brain, you know. And I'm thinking, because uh, I used to think, uh, you know, the cream would always rise to the top. <laughs> you make a good film and eventually it would get picked up. But then I realized, actually, no, the business is a little bit more businessy, mm. you know? <laughs> so uh, thankfully, like our uh, distributors, Breakout Pictures, they share the same philosophy in life. It's not necessarily about making a fortune, but actually doing something with meaning and purpose, you know? And like by default, you'll have, like, success will come. But the fundamentals are in place. So no matter what I do in the future, I know I've got the right team around me to achieve whatever goals we set for ourselves, you know. Mm. But like, especially as a film filmmaker, you realize that, um, like, of course, you might have very um, focused and very selfish goals, but you realize as a filmmaker, it's a very communal experience, and you're relying on so many other people. Uh, to do very basic things, but collectively, there's this sort of universal sense of we're all pulling in the same direction. It's actually, without sort of, you know, sort of, you, you know, it's hard work, but it's actually a beautiful experience because we're all there working hard, and the last day when we call a wrap on the last day, like there's a collective side because we all know that we'll all go back to normal life and go our separate ways. And there's something like freeing about, you get to play for about three or four months. And um, like I love it for that reason, but I also love it for the fact that you can do something impactful. Mm. It, like you said, like it might not get seen or heard by everybody, but if one person sees it and one person's impacted by it, for me personally, that that's enough. Like I won't probably make millions, but uh, at least if I do cast off this mortal coil, I'll have a smile on my face doing it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but can you relate to that, Richelle, when, he, when he's talking about, when Paddy's talking about that, like, you know, the three or four months to make a movie for you is now Paris is in front of you. It's that, that group of people you have around you. How yeah, important is that? Like cycling is a, a solo sport, really. Mm. Do you know it's up to you at the end of the day? But for me to to do well in Paris, you train for four years. Like for this, for me, it's for like thirty eight second basically race. So like, do you know? I suppose it's everyone has to support you. So I find if I, 
surround myself with positive people, with people who believe in what I'm doing or what I want to do, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be successful. And I'm not doing it for myself. I always say, the most question I get asked is, you know, do you want to be remembered for being a Paralympic medalist? And I say, no, I want to be remembered for, like, showing people that you can do something even when life throws you a curveball, basically. Like, you know, I was told by a lot of doctors, you know, forget about sport. You need to find something else. But for me, I said, no, like, this is what I want to do. And I obviously had the family and friends support to, to you know, help me do it or whatever. So the first two years of my cycling, I was totally, obviously, self-funded. So now I'm, I'm funded a bit by uh, Sport Ireland. So it allows me to, you know, travel and compete and all that sort of stuff. Um, but again, this is only a part of my life. The way I look at it is, you know, I'm only going to be an athlete for maybe another cycle, another Paralympic cycle. And then, like... I'm going to have to do something else or I'm going to have to, you know, become something else. As I say, like, people are like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. I still don't know. Like, I think mm -hmm. in my eyes, I, I still want to give back to sport, but especially I want to give back to disability in sport. So when we were in, when I was in college before my injury, I said, you know, they'd be giving you the different things you could do. And I was always like elite sport. Do you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have looked into like para sport or any of that. Whereas now I think having the background of science and from being a para athlete, like, I'm just on the hunt to find like kids who mightn't even know they qualify for para sport. Like I was going around to schools and I remember like spotting a guy who had a bit of a limp like me. I'm just like, come here. And he's like, <laughs> like you've club foot. And he was like, how does she know that? Like? And I was like, do you ever think of cycling? Like trying to recruit him. But uh, yeah, I just want to, I want to be remembered for giving back and for showing that you can really do whatever you put your mind to as opposed to you're the girl on the poster who won whatever medal and that sort of thing. But uh, I definitely believe in having positive people around you. Like, so I've changed coaches. We've changed a few things in Cycling Ireland and that. And I think it's having the same outlook. So, you know, everyone can't win medals. You know, if a top five at the Paralympics is what I'm going to do, I know I've given it my all. I know I've trained for four years to get that top five. And you don't want someone to just say, oh, shouldn't win a medal. Because, you know, there's elite athletes and there's sometimes... People like you saying both that you're never going to beat no matter how hard you train. So for me, it's never about the medals. It's about like giving back to the people who gave so much up for you in the first place. So, mm, but yeah, cool. it's definitely it's the support network around you. That's wonderful. I just want to rewind a second. So you trained for four years for a 38 second race. Yeah. So the the margin of error there is nothing. Yeah. So, so um, you when I, I was reading through what the lot of stuff you won, you run you won a lot of things. And am I correct saying, and I hope I'm not getting it wrong, you missed the medal by a fraction? Yeah, so in Tokyo, uh, in the 500 meter, it's uh, two laps. And um, yeah, the world record was, I say 38 because that's the goal, but the world record's 39.1 at the minute. And in Tokyo, I did a 39.3. And you didn't get the medal? Yeah, no, so... And, it's you, and you trained for four years for Yeah, that. like it could be 0 0.1, 0 0.2 of a second. And I think, um, but for me going to Tokyo, I feel like there's the gains I can make from there. So obviously it's very hard for power athletes to get like sponsorship, stuff mm. like that, because I don't have the results to say, I've won all this, so will you sponsor me to do this? So then you turn up and like the Americans have the best bikes, the best position mm. and stuff. Mm. And you feel like, okay, could I have got that point one of a second if mm. I had a different bike or that sort of stuff. So going to Paris, I'm really like this year, you're trying to tie down your your equipment so that you have the fastest stuff and then i also <laughs> use it as a bit of an excuse oh yeah i would have got that point one of a second if i had that bike like so eventually yeah uh, you get to the stage where your body physically can't do anymore 
and that's where the equipment and the different things like that come in. But as well, for me as a track cyclist, I have to base myself in Mallorca for a lot of the year because Ireland don't have an indoor track. So then uh, the one thing I find a little bit disheartening is you fly back into the airport after Tokyo and they, the ones who won the medals go off the front of the plane and the ones who didn't are like at the back. <laughs> and then the first question RTE asks you is like, and why did you think like, you know, you didn't get that medal? Or you feel like saying, because you never built me a velodrome, like I can't even train at home. Like. Mm -hmm. But I'm also like, yeah, it's, yeah, whatever, like, yeah. Well, they, so when I was saying at the beginning, you know, the, hopefully we're all going to learn something about determination and motivation, you know. <laughs> if there isn't uh, something to learn there from 38-second race over four years, I mean, I don't know what, uh, what we can learn. Fantastic. It's, it's amazing. You know what uh, I learned from that? Yes. And believe it or not, in I was of all places, I was in Burger King. <laughs> Burger King, the biggest kip in Ireland. <laughs> And on the wall, there was this painting, and it was a little sailboat heading toward an island on a rough sea, and the quote underneath it was, success is the journey, not the destination. And I was thinking, fucking hell, Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm training for four years for a short race, success better be the fucking journey. <laughs> 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 uh, look, I'm conscious of time, and I want to give a bit of space for a couple of questions uh, from the audience. But what's next for you, Paddy? Then you were mentioning a, a movie they had in your head, or maybe it's just gone a little bit further than than your head at this stage. What's next? What's next? Oh, Jesus! You know, just people ask me a lot. Uh, what's my definition of success? Like, yes, I'm going to make a film, and there's a documentary being made about my life all that stuff, but my personal definition, I know it might not make sense, but it's good to have goals and all that, but like, again, it goes back to that second chance syndrome. My definition of success is this very moment, because scientifically, there's no proof of the future, yeah. and the past is just a collection of memories. Yeah. So we only have this moment, and, and actually, if you break it down to heartbeats and breathing, it's like, I can breathe in, like, this is success, I'm alive. So here I am in Greystones, having this chat with yourselves, and we're going to drink whiskey afterwards. <laughs> Fuck, this is success. But absolutely. But what's, well... <laughs> but what's the movie? I want to know the next movie. I want to know this, th what you're going to do. You have something that sounds really interesting. The next movie... See, I wanted to get ahead of the curve. And lately, there was a breakthrough in... Uh, technological breakthrough in medicine and science. And my next film is called Reverse. Re like Basically, like reverse therapy. In the future, there'll be a reverse therapy where you can reverse the symptoms of a spinal cord injury. Essentially, you could uh, walk again. So I wanted to make a film called Reverse about a guy who's uh, training to be a Paralympian in relay racing, and uh, his, one of his best friends is one of his teammates. But he's married, and he has kids, and he's a very successful life. But his father is very old-fashioned, and his father wants him to inherit his business. And of course, his father is quite rich. He's a property developer. Uh, by the way, no copyright in this. <laughs> <laughs> I have the template at home. 
But uh, so this, so the father wants him to walk again, to be a capable son. And uh, you know, in like the young, like the lad is upset. It's a personal story, and he's upset by his father not embracing him for who he is. And uh, in training, he has an injury, and the doctor says to him, "Look, um, there's no point in you trying to train for the Olympics or Paralympics because." You know, you're injured. And um, he ends up taking this reverse therapy, and suddenly he can walk again after a while. And uh, he tries to, uh, I guess, function in his life, in his familiar life. And suddenly he's a stranger to his wife. And he's a stranger to his kids, because like, his kids never knew a walking father. And um, his best friend was also depressed, was not capable of he wasn't eligible for the reverse therapy, so he ended up suiciding his best friend. So what he does is he ends up trying to go back to his previous life before paralysis and hook up with the ex-girlfriend and, and his life beforehand. And he suddenly realizes that um, that life no longer exists. In fact, he no longer fits physically into that life, so he finds himself stuck in between this world and that world, and somewhere in the middle in purgatory is this guy. And uh, you know what they say, be careful what you wish for. Um, you know, he got this quote-unquote cure to walk again, and suddenly he doesn't fit here, he no longer fits there, and he's suddenly distraught with, uh, he can walk, fair enough, but he's actually distraught. Uh, he doesn't have any connections in his life. He, he is lost, and uh, it's that saying, uh, it's a tagline for the film, uh, the grass is always greener on the other side. And I don't know if that's human nature or not, but uh, we, we tend to think, you know, like if, if a cure comes in a couple of years' time and I can walk again, I'll still be an asshole. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'll just be a walking asshole. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll still have the same, same stresses, you know? So, and that's, yeah. that's reverse, yeah. So it's quite personal. I just hope. I just hope when um, when it, when you are in Cannes that you call me and I'll be the first interview. <laughs> Will you remember me? It's on record, by the way. I'm just wondering. None of the yachts are wheelchair friendly. I'm like, <laughs> fuck. So we're looking we'll forward. We'll be on a raft <laughs> in Cannes. You know. We're looking forward to that. And uh, Rochelle, last question for you. What are you gonna do when you grow up? Yeah. <laughs> no, so what, what's next? So this Paris, you're going to get to Paris. Wonderful. What's next? Yeah, so the goal really, I like to just say, I suppose, short term like. So this weekend, do the best I can the race, get qualification points, and then go towards August as the main competition this year. So the goal is, you know, to perform at my best and be the fittest I can be going in. But really, I'm just, um, I'm not looking at Paris because you need to qualify first, you know, but the goal is, yeah, to get to Paris and to just do everyone proud, as I've said, you know, to go in the fittest I can so I can get the best result I can because you can't control the uncontrollables on the day. So mm -hmm. following on from that then, I just kind of hope to, to give back to all the, that sport has given me because I don't think I, I would fit into any other, I suppose, job. So whatever I'm going to do, it's going to be in sport and it's going to be in like recruitment of probably younger people and trying to rebuild it again because I know I probably wouldn't be in sport if it wasn't for the role models I had growing up. So you're trying to just repeat the cycle as much as you can. And yeah, I think I'll be, I'll be watching the Sunday game till about 90 anyway, every Sunday <laughs> evening. So. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well done. Well done, both of you. Thank you. Um, we will, uh, 
we will give a chance for a couple of people to ask a question. Is that okay? Is that okay with you? Then we will let you go back. No, but uh, if you have a question, do please raise your hand for a second, and so we can hear you. If you don't have a question, it's all right. There's a question here from Mr. Paul Byrne. Yeah, I, I just wonder for both of you, was, was there ever a, a, like a dark period where it didn't seem this positivity that you have now? Was there a point where you just didn't have hope, you didn't have this belief that this is going to be fine, I going to do it? Yeah, I think, I mean, it'd be great to be able to walk. <laughs> you know, there is darkness. Like uh, Dave's here, my PA, and friend, he's my arms and legs. So, like, I, like, when I say it, like, people don't believe me, I never dream, like, I'm never in a wheelchair when I dream. Like, not that I am ashamed of being in a wheelchair, but I just, like, I'm always walking and kicking football and having the crack, so, yeah, there is that longing to walk. But um, I don't dwell on it too much. Yeah. Yeah, so I suppose, um, I'd say, what I still do it, like, to this day, when I wake up, the first thing you try to do is move your, my right, like, toes or whatever. And I take that, you take that two minutes just to be like, okay, this is real, like. Now, like, snap out of it and get going training or whatever. But I think definitely back at the start and when I thought, I for ages I thought, like, this is just a dream. You ha like, I have to wake up and be able to do whatever. And I was constantly surrounded. I woke up in my, my childhood room or whatever and... It was just medals everywhere from stuff I'd done. There was like Arsenal poster, Galway poster. I remember one day I got up, like woke up, tried to move my foot, wasn't moving. I just got all the posters, just put them all in a bag like, and then just took like every single picture of me walking down the stairs, Galway jersey. Next picture, like with a football, something like that. So I just wanted, I wanted to get rid of all that like, so I basically just painted the room, got rid of that so that the first thing I seen when I wake up wasn't the old me. It was trying to change it to the new me and now I suppose... When I wake up, I see like the cycling things, the Tokyo stuff, um, all the different medals and that sort of thing. Instead of looking back on the past, but yeah, it was definitely hard and like surrounded by it. Like I'd say, my mom was like, "Right, let's get some pictures of her." Like, and literally there was none that were in like in a jersey or something like that. Like, but yeah, you definitely still to this day. I think um, if I could wake up like without a brain injury, I think like if I was still playing soccer, would I be on that Ireland team like going to the World Cup? Like, do you know? You don't know, but if this hadn't happened to me, I definitely wouldn't be sitting here and I definitely wouldn't have got to represent my country. So I try to think that way. But yeah, you, you still always think of what it would be like if you hadn't got the brain injury, I suppose. But the goal is for me to stop th feeling sorry for myself and try to just get up, get on and keep going, yeah. Oh, I love poetry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you about my first poem. <laughs> <laughs> Honest way. to God, yeah. I wrote my first poem. It's I'll only go on two then. words. Tell us. Go it's on. only two words. Yes. It's very simple. Like when I came out of hospital, I was given this uh, computer, and uh, I was so like, I was, "Is this my future?" Like a little computer in the corner of a room, and I wrote a poem. The very first thing that was ever written on that keyboard, it just simply read. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the very first poem I wrote. Uh, Paddy's looking over at Dave's arms and legs, and Dave said to me earlier on, I hope he doesn't walk again, otherwise I'll be out of work. He <laughs> <laughs> did say that, you did. Um, and there is a positive, he's got we a all, job. We also said, where would you be if you weren't paralyzed? Prison, Prison. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Probably. 
So, anyone else? Uh, any other questions? Uh, there's a... Oh, there's, there's a man in the corner, so I can't see you. Uh, Paddy, had you not had your accent, would you be a filmmaker today? Prison. <laughs> I'd be making films in prison. Yeah. I know. I, I, honestly, no. No. I had ambitions of, like, uh, probably following in my father's footsteps. Uh, I'd have a craft, whether it was woodworker, carpentry, or building or something. It would be something along those lines. I'd probably be up to my eyes in debt and own, or not own and have just two houses and I own none of them. <laughs> probably. So, yeah. I, I need to, like you were saying, I need to remind myself every day that actually I'm in a very privileged position. It might not see that, look, look like that on the surface, but I... Uh, I can't really see from here, so if you do have a question, do please shout. Um, otherwise, I, I'll, I'll let the people go back home. Um, no? Oh, there's a question here from the corner. Um, so people who meet you and who are very grateful for you sharing your story, so thank you. But how do people show appreciation and not kind of go into feeling pity or feeling euphoria? What's the best compliment people have given you in the past? Your yeah, I suppose for me, like my disability mightn't be that visible to people, but I find like if I'm in a crowd or if I'm trying to walk by someone fast, like I just look like, like slow down and calm down, like just look. But yeah, people have said to me like, instead of like asking me, you know, what happened or whatever, they just say like, they used to see me as like the para athlete, whereas now I'm kind of just known as a sports person. I think that's that's the best compliment I can be given that I was Rochelle the footballer. And then I was Rochelle, the sick person. And then I was Rochelle, the para-athlete. But I think to a lot of people now, I'm just that, the cyclist. I think that's, that's the best compliment I can be given, that I'm not seen as I'm put into the bracket of being a disabled athlete. I'm just an athlete-like. And I think, yeah, that's definitely what I like to be known as, I suppose, yeah. Mm. How about you, Paddy? Um, it might sound a bit, I don't know, pretentious or elevated, but... There's this quote, I love it so much. It's a quote from Gandhi, and uh, it's been murdered on the internet over the last 20 years, but um, it simply reads, be the change you hope to see in the world. So rather than me sit here and blame someone else for the situation that I find myself in, good, bad, or ugly, just taking ownership and responsibility for how I feel today. So if I want the world to be a better place, I know it starts here. And that might sound like a cliche, but it's actually true. So be the change you hope to see in the world. And I start here. And I know that sounds hard to do, but um, you know, being a human, it's you know, it's not easy. But um, my response would be very Irish. I'd be like, Ah, fuck yeah, don't. <laughs> <laughs> We don't take compliments. We're Irish. <laughs> I don't think you're getting an answer. I tried this before. With, I tried this before with someone else in the room. Um, okay, so that's it. I've had enough of all of you. Uh, this is getting late. Unless you have an amazing question or a question, and um, now you, Paul, you already asked two. Okay, look, I'd like to say thanks a million to Richelle Timothy and Paris Slattery. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks, Emilia. Yeah, give, us a, give us a hug. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paddy Slattery and Richelle Timothy. Please join me again for more guests and more conversations. Shining like a sunny day